Welcome back to the NatMatSci podcast brought to you by the National Mathematics and Science College. This is the podcast to let you find out more about NatMatSci by hearing staff and students talking about their experiences, all unscripted and unplugged, so that you can hear what life is really like at the college. Today, we're talking to the new assistant principal academic, Jocelyn Darcy, all about what brought her to the sphere of maths and NatMatSci, the connection between data and effective learning, and we even talk about Freakonomics, the hidden side of everything. So let's not waste any more time, but get into that episode right now. Jocelyn, welcome to the NatMatSci podcast, and thank you for being here. How are you today? I am very well. Thanks, Simon. I'm uh, actually in Wales at the moment, visiting a friend uh, near Monmouth, and it's uh, nice and green here, lots of hills and, and valleys, which I think is, is one of the things that Wales is known for. I'm not from this country originally, so I'm still kind of getting used to different parts of it, even though I've lived here for over 20 years. It still, it still kind of surprises me how much England is like a miniature country. Like you travel two hours and everything is completely different. You know, the landscape <laughs> looks entirely different. You go from like coastal and then the new forest is you know just completely with all those the ponies that are everywhere there, there's mm. no grass and then you go a little bit into the Cotswolds and then you've got all the bright yellow you know rapeseed fields and <laughs> yeah. then you go like to the Lake District and it's all trees and mountains and um, yeah. you know America's not like that. You, you travel two hours and it looks exactly the same. <laughs> okay well tell us a little bit about that then. Tell us where you're from and what brought you across to the UK. Well, I was born in um, Los Angeles um, and I moved away from there when I was about two to the Bay Area. Uh, my father was an electrical engineer, so certainly Silicon Valley was the right place to be in the 90s. Um, he actually invented kind of the the technology that they use uh, lasers to sculpt the eye cornea so that you can see without glasses. Oh, so he wow. was on the eczema team that got... Um, kind of FDA approval for that. Wow. So that's, that's, yeah, it's exciting. Excellent. Um, yeah. And so we lived, I lived in kind of Northern California, Bay Area until I was nine. And then um, I think my mother and father wanted a, a little adventure. So they, my dad convinced his company that um, what they really needed was somebody in the UK to kind mm -hmm. of talk about the technology and, you know, to, to share share the word and um, get approval and speak to doctors and all that. So they moved us over. It was supposed to be for two years. Mm -hmm. But I think after about a year, the company realized that maybe they didn't actually need somebody in the UK at the moment. And even if they did, um, my dad probably wasn't the guy because what they really needed was him back in the Bay Area making the lasers. Oh, um, I see. He's, right. Yeah. He's an engineer, not, <laughs> not yeah. a PR guy. Um, so they moved us back a little bit earlier and spent a couple of years there. Sadly, my dad passed away when I was 11. And then I think we had such a nice time in England. My mother met an Englishman um, and we moved here when I was 13. And so it's been my kind of permanent home for the last 25 years. But mm. I've gone back and forth um, for university and my mother summers in Maine. So I'm still very connected to America, but I spent my teenage years here. I went to British public school. I went to um, Cheltenham Ladies College, and um, I, you know, I feel like all of my cultural references are very much based in in English culture. It's only my accent that kind of makes me seem American. Uh, right. So let's just take it back a little bit. Let's go back to the start of your career. What took you into teaching in the first place? 
I I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a teacher. I think everybody else knew that I was going to be a teacher when I was growing up. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to be a politician or a litigator. I've always loved learning. I've always loved school. And I do really enjoy public speaking. That was kind of my favorite. Public speaking and debating were my favorite activities at school. But I kind of ended up taking a job as a teaching assistant and then I just couldn't imagine being anywhere else. There's there's something about working in a school that just makes everything feel possible. You can just you can do anything in a school and you don't have to be the best at it. You mm. can, you know, you can join the choir and not be an amazing singer. Whereas kind of in the real world, you're only gonna join a choir if you're a very, very good singer. Uh, mm. Or you could, you know, go rock climbing. Um, and, and these are all things that, schools kind of offer and when you're in a school situation you can just do it and just take part in it and it doesn't have to be a big commitment and a big choice and you don't have to be particularly kind of skilled at it and I think that's I love that opportunity and that kind of diversity of experience that schools have I also mm. really like working with teenagers um, I think there are a lot of fun to be around and I think that interactions you know are really meaningful I was just, I was actually just chatting with a former student. He's 28 now. And it was, I met him at my first school that I worked at, which was um, something called a National Challenge School, which they've got rid of that label. But it used to be a school where I think fewer than 25% of the students achieved five grades, grade C or above at GCSE. Okay. So really, really struggling um, yeah. from a, you know, difficult area really tough school um and this boy had a lot of behavioral problems but was very bright and we found that we had similar tastes in in music kind of 90s american rock we both like so okay i remember when i was there i made him a cd that was the the it was i called it the end to underachieving and he um he didn't do particularly well in school i think it was kind of off and on and he had to change schools but then he um, fell in love with coding and he ended up doing, he ended up going to university, which was, you know, unheard of. Unheard in of, that school. right. Yeah. yeah. He did a master's at Cambridge <laughs> in maths and, and AI. <laughs> and he invented this app that he ended up selling to a very well-known food delivery company um, mm -hmm. for millions and millions of pounds. No, you're kidding. Seriously, no. And li literally last night, because he lives in Wales, um, he was just messaging me. He said, Miss, you're the only one that ever believed in me. And you always saw through all my father issues. Oh. And um, and now he sends me all these playlists and all these new bands. And he created the, <laughs> the original CD, The End to Underachieving. It is actually a public playlist on Spotify. So oh, wow. if, if anyone wants to listen to it, you can you can find The End to, the end to Underachieving. What a great story. <laughs> well, I just really like working with teenagers um, because, you know, every interaction to them seems to seems to be so meaningful. Or, and mm. it doesn't matter if it turns out that they're a millionaire or it turns out that they're, they remember you and they're having a hard time. And they just mm. think, actually, what did Miss Darcy say? Or But just to know that yeah. I can kind of have that impact yeah. it, it means so much to me. Wow. Yeah, I can see that. I can feel that in your voice as you're talking. That that just sounds fantastic. <laughs> but tell me about, about NatMatsai then. What, what is it about NatMatsai that brought you here? Yeah, I mean, I love maths. I'm a real geek. I'm, I'm a total nerd. You know, I, I went to MIT. 
And one of the really fun things about MIT is that you can walk into any room and you can tell a joke that requires multivariable calculus knowledge of that to understand like the punchline. And mm -hmm. no, believe me, there are funny jokes that require multivariable calculus <laughs> to understand. I, you, you seem skeptical, Simon, but I promise you there, there are some. And, and everybody in that room will understand it because mm. everybody there is kind of already on the same page. And I love that. And I, I have a lot of interests and I, I like to read and I'm really, you know, I'm, I teach economics as well and I'm interested in that. Um, but my, my, my true love, my kind of my, my first love is, is mathematics and to, to be in an environment where that is kind of central to the ethos of the school and really where, where people can kind of geek out in the way that Nat Matt Sai really does, like the face masks or, you know, the chemist tree where it had the, the elements hanging down from it. Um, it's just, it's just so unbelievably exciting mm. for me. I was at, it was interesting. Mm. I, I saw the job advertisement at the same time that I was listening to um, Tim Harford on the, the radio. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't normally listen to the radio actually, because I have a former student who makes great playlists for me to listen to of instead. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was listening to Radio 4 and um, they'd, they'd been asked a question, posed the question, if you got, this was kind of at the height of the pandemic, um, if you got all of the copies, all of the, the virions of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, what volume would it fill? Which is, you know, I thought, God, what a great question. Um, mm. And I, I just, it, it just made me light up. And I started thinking about it because, you know, there's maths in there, but you also have to know things about viral load. You've got to know that, you know, the average person has about 10 to the seven, you know, per milliliter. So then you've got to think, okay, so how many milliliters given that it's going to be carried in the mucus, but not the blood. Um, and then mm -hmm. you're looking at the number of people and how do you do that? Do you actually look at the WHO because that's confirmed cases. And then, uh -huh. you know, you have an idea in each country, what percentage of actual of, of cases are tested but it varies from from country depending on you know the testing procedures because mm. you know certainly here in the height of the pandemic we were only we were only testing people who were very very ill right of for, course for treatment yeah. reasons we weren't we weren't really testing for any other reasons um mm. so you know there were so many different things and and i just i loved how lots of different areas of maths and science were kind of coming together to answer that mm. question because then you were you know doing things in standard form and doing it kind of mm. all in your head and I, I really really liked it and i think i'm not going to say the answer i think I'll, I'll leave it to listeners to, to come up with their <laughs> own with their own predictions and maybe email them to me or you can search for the podcast yourself and see what um what the two people mm came up with for, for that. All right. Well, I'm sure some of the people listening to this will, will do that. Is that is that one of the beauties and the dangers of, of any kind of data science, though, in that you could use data to, to present one finding or you could use it to present the complete opposite? But how should people in life balance that difference between the two? Yeah. Gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that's a danger of any piece of information. Um, mm. I don't think that's just data science. I think any fact that you have, you can always spin to the contrary. You know, mm. you can say people with blue eyes are attractive. And then does that mean people with brown eyes are unattractive? Or does it, you, you know, you can always spin a piece of data. It doesn't matter whether it's kind of numerical data or whether it's a different kind. Um, mm. I think the danger with numerical data is that so few people understand what it means. 
that it's probably easier to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. Um, it's interesting when I when I teach graphs, um, you know, kind of pie charts, bar charts, histograms, box and whisker plots. I I do tell people the only reason that you would ever draw a graph is to try to convince somebody of something. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. So, you know, you can choose whatever graph you want. You can manipulate the axes. But if you're drawing a graph, it's probably because you're making an argument. So mm. to me, that automatically means beware of any graphs that I see mm. printed that yeah. are trying to convince me of something because... To me, that's why you draw a graph because you want to. Yeah. You want to. Yeah. You want to hide. You want to show something and hide something else, um, and that's what a graph <laughs> can do for you. Okay, so let's jump forward then, twelve months into the future. If you're looking back on the last twelve months that you've been at Natmatsai, what do you think some of the things might be that would fill you with the most most amount of joy? I guess really, what are you most looking forward to in the next twelve months? Um, I think I mean getting to know the school. I, I don't know it well enough yet because I, you know, I've, I've had some visits. I am so excited to be working with Andy and Penny and Charlie and the team there. I've, I've met, um, you know, some people and they all just seem like such committed teachers and just they're all really excited about what they're doing. And I love I love that possibility. I like being in a place where I'm excited to be in a place where nobody is ever going to say, well, this is how we've always done it. Um, because mm. there is no, this is how we've always done it. I'm also just really excited to meet some of the, you know, the best mathematicians and scientists in the world, not the country, but mm. the entire world who've chosen to come to the school to get better um, at those subjects and some, some of the youngest ones and, and, and to work with them um, and to get mm. to know them and, and find out what their ambitions are and to kind of try to help them, them realize those. I, I enjoy working with teachers a lot as well. Um, in previous roles, I've been kind of responsible for staff development and I've trained quite a few math teachers. Um, and I've recently got, well, not recently, but in the last kind of five years, I've become really interested in cognitive science and the potential okay. applications to the classroom. I think, you know, for a long time, the field of education was based on sort of thought experiments and conjectures um, and cognitive science was approached more like a social science um, mm -hmm. kind of from a data perspective um, and you know for, for decades ne'er the two shall meet at, at no point did anybody think um, the science of how we learn might be useful information for teachers uh, mm. but in the last kind of mm. 10 years people have started to think well actually maybe that is information for teachers and no it, it's yeah. not necessarily the case that everything will translate directly to the classroom but actually having an awareness of if you want to memorize something, if you want to learn something to be able to recall it, these are the most effective strategies. I think it's really an exciting time because people are really starting to think about how to bring that into the classroom. So what are some of those most effective strategies then for, for learning and retaining information? Well, retrieval practice is key. So you can almost see it on brain scans, but you know, effectively there's kind of recognition is very different from retrieval. And okay. it's very easy to fool yourself when you see something that you've seen before to go, oh, yeah, I know that. You don't know it. You're just recognizing it. So when students kind of prepare for a test by looking through their notes, what they're doing mm -hmm. is they're recognizing material. They're going, oh, yes, I remember. That was something I learned. But that is a very different act than retrieving the information yourself. If you, if you compare it to something like seeing people, if I introduced you to two people, 
or something, or I told you two people's names. Um, and then I kind of showed you a hundred people. And I said, do you recognize this person? Do you recognize, do you, you know, do you recognize them? Or I told you their names. I said, is this their name? Is this their name? Is this their name? Is this their name? Um, when I said their name, you'd go, yes, that was their name. Well done. Um, but if I introduced you to a hundred people and I said, tell me all their names, you, you're not going to be able to do it. So no, it's very no. different to retrieve the information than it is to kind of to confirm it or recognize that it's something that you learned at one point. And in any sort of test situation, you're always being asked to retrieve. You're never being asked, of course. have you heard of finding the nth term of a sequence? <laughs> nobody, no, nobody really asks you that. They ask you to find <laughs> the nth term of a sequence. So, you know, I think the most important thing is to make sure that that's what you're practicing when you are revising. Some people say that one of the best ways to to learn to be able to retrieve that information is to always be testing yourself before you get to the test or before you get to the exam. Is that something that's a good approach to take? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, it is about um, so there's something called kind of spaced retrieval practice. Um, and it's it is about the time period. So it doesn't have to be, you know, it's not always, um, but there there's some interesting graphs. So there's a graph um, that describes kind of how long it takes to forget something. You can flip that just like you can with any data and say, okay, mm -hmm. so the best point to retrieve something is just when I'm about to forget it. So you want something to be what the Bjorks called desirable difficulty. So you want it to be a little bit difficult to access the information because mm -hmm. otherwise you're not retrieving it again. It's still in your kind of immediate short-term yeah, memory. You're yeah. still thinking about it. So you want to have to retrieve it, but you want it still to be retrievable. And yeah. the forgetting curve tells you kind of when you're about to forget it. And so in a way that tells you the best time to retrieve it. So yeah. for me, this is very much a case of do your homework the night that it is set. Because if I set a homework on a Thursday and it's not, you know, I don't see the class again until Monday, um, if we've done something new on that Thursday lesson and they don't tackle it until Sunday night, they are way past the point of being able to to retrieve it. So it's not constantly practicing it, but it's it's kind of when and if you follow those points. So it's sort of, you know, within a few hours and then within a few days and then within a few weeks and then you kind of check up on it and just go maybe once a month. Um, but once something is in your long term memory, it's there you know, forever. And really the goal of learning is to put things into to true long-term memory. So on that basis, with that homework, then if it's set on the Thursday, it should be done on the Thursday night for most people. But it shouldn't be done immediately after that lesson on the Thursday because that's too close to when you've actually exactly. learned it in the first place. Yeah. So sometimes right. students say, if I have a lesson that kind of goes into lunchtime or it's right before lunch, sometimes students will say, can I just stay here and finish the homework? And I say, no, because you want you haven't you haven't had time to forget it you haven't had so you're not gonna have to retrieve it you need those few hours you just it, it doesn't have to be too long but it needs to be enough time for you to go away and think about something else so that you're not mm. thinking about this anymore um and then mm. you have to retrieve this in order to think about it in order to do it again mm. now jocelyn we've talked about maths we talked about data we talked about information we've talked about uh, we've touched on economics as well because you mentioned that too more and more people are reading into things like Freakonomics. Is that a good thing for young people to be reading up on? And for people that don't know Freakonomics, could you just explain what that is as well? Well, I, I mean, Freakonomics is a book that kind of starts to describe some aspects of behavioural economics. Um, is that is that kind of what you're talking about? Exactly that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's a case of, 
applying traditional economic models to more interesting circumstances and seeing whether or not they still hold. So, you know, I think one of the examples in Freakonomics was about this one. This one is particularly poignant to me because I have small children. So it was um, there was a nursery school and parents were late to pick up their children. And so mm -hmm. the nursery thought uh, and it was really annoying for them. You know, I can imagine if I had spent eight hour day with <laughs> lots and lots of very small children, I certainly would not want the parents to be late to pick them up. And, you know, they had their own families to get home to. And um, but but parents were still late, no matter what they said, no matter what they did, um, the parents were still late. So they had the idea, OK, well, let's find parents for being late and let's find them a lot of money. Let's find them, you know, 25 pounds or something just for being one minute late. What do you what, what would be the natural thing that you think would happen if you're faced with a 25 pound charge for being one minute late? You'd think that everybody would turn up on time and never, never be late. Well, the opposite happened. Actually, people became late more often because what happened was the nursery turned it into a chargeable extra. They basically were saying, look, it's OK if you're late. It just costs you 25 pounds. <sighs> Oh, I see. And so parents started making that calculation. And, you know, you're in the middle of a business deal that closes at four million pounds. And you're thinking, is it worth the extra 25 pounds to be a minute late? Well, yes, it certainly is. <laughs> it is. Uh -huh, <laughs> yeah. It is. So once people put, um, you know, a monetary value on it, actually, they found that the monetary value was less um, of an incentive than the guilt factor of hmm. annoying the people who are looking after your children. Gosh. So, you know, if you're thinking of opening a nursery, don't impose a late fine. Just just do the thing that um, that I, I had once where they, you know, three of them stand outside the nursery holding your crying child and say, you know, we close <laughs> at six o'clock, don't you? <laughs> and that's much more effective. Yeah. Jocelyn, tell me one of the things you miss about America, given the fact that now for the last 20 odd years you've been over here. Oh, it's sort of a difficult question. This is a really boring answer. It's really boring. Is that okay? <laughs> it's okay. We can do boring. Are you sure? Okay. Hopefully the rest of what I say is interesting enough. Um, I miss the wide roads. The, the roads in England are just so narrow and it's just driving is like, it's like a full activity that requires all of your concentration <laughs> all of the time. And it's really not what I want to do. I mean, I'm, I missed a motorway exit not that long ago because I was trying to solve this differential equation in my head. Um, and I just, and it, I just missed it. I do not want to think about driving. I'm sorry, but driving is boring. Like I, I just want to, I just, I just want to be able to get from A to B and in America, the roads are wider and it's just a little bit easier to do. And no round, yeah. you know, no roundabouts. Like it says, stop, you stop. Great. There's stoplights. Great. You stop. It's, it's more straightforward. It's less of kind of a yeah. finessing thing of, Oh, do you go in this lane or should I go? Or we know that this isn't really big enough for both of us. So, so let's play this game of who's going to go first. And yeah. Yeah. So yeah. wide it's, roads. It's what we do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, you. oh, no, you. Oh, you do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then when you're back in America for the times that you go over there, uh, what are some of the things about the UK that you miss? Oh, well, I mean, the UK feels like home. So when I go back to America, it feels it feels comfortable. It's like I have a holiday home there. So it feels familiar and comfortable, but it doesn't feel like home. So, you know, I miss the feelings of home. Hmm. I miss the green space a lot. You know, I love how green England is. I miss, um, I miss the humor. I think my, my sense of humor is quite dry um, and quite, quite mm -hmm. British in some ways. Um, and people in America don't 
understand that I'm not always being sincere, that sometimes I'm being sarcastic. And so I think in England, you know, people assume that if what you're saying doesn't sound reasonable, it's probably because you are being sarcastic and, and people in America <laughs> yeah. are less likely to sort of take that, um, make that assumption. I see. We need to bring this to a close in a minute, but for anyone who's heard anything and might want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Well, I um, I am on Twitter. I'm at Miss JK Darcy, but I have an email address, obviously at the college, um, so they can email me mm -hmm. and that is j.darcy with no capital, with, uh, sorry, with no um, apostrophe. Interestingly, not everyone knows this, but email addresses are not capital sensitive at all. So even if you have capitals in your mm -hmm. email address, you can always omit them um, and it will still get to you. But it's j.darcy at natmatsci.ac.uk. Okay. Well, uh, Jocelyn, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about maths. I love the passion that you talk with. And thank you for telling us all about your experiences leading up to here. Thank you for your time. Thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure, Simon. So that was Jocelyn Darcy. Thank you, Jocelyn, for joining us on this episode of the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Now, you can follow Jocelyn on Twitter. That's Miss JK Darcy. Or you can contact her by email, which is j.darcy at natmatsci.ac.uk. Or just search up the National Mathematics and Science College or Natmatsci and you'll find the website too. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, then please do follow this podcast channel because if you do, then when each episode is released, you'll just get a small notification to let you know that it's available. Each episode will be talking to someone different, which means you'll be able to gain an insight into all parts of college life. But in the meantime, thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.